you for tuning into episode 43 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified mindful habit coach, writer, speaker, husband, father, four ultra marathon runner, and creator of The Path Back, an online pornography addiction recovery program that is helping people reclaim their lives from pornography addiction. If you or somebody that you know is struggling with pornography addiction, please point them to pathbackrecovery.com, and there you can download a short ebook that describes five common mistakes that people make when trying to overcome pornography addiction. Again, that's pathbackrecovery.com. And uh, just bear with me here for just a tiny bit of business. Um, First, I want to thank all of the new listeners who headed over to the virtual couch from Jody Moore's Better Than Happy podcast. I was fortunate enough to be a guest on her podcast last week. Uh, The episode aired on Friday. It's episode 138, and she titled it Narcissism and More. And man, we covered so many topics. I just, I highly recommend checking it out. And every time I glance at that name, even when I was uh, trying to do a little bit of the marketing afterward, I just saw Narcissism and Tony Overbay. And I I had to keep going back and reading it. You know, is she saying, uh, interview with narcissist Tony Overbay? So uh, hopefully that wasn't how that came across. But it was, it was so much fun. And I realized there were a couple of times that I was talking just a million miles an hour because she, it seemed like she just asked me soapbox topic after soapbox topic. And she just, uh, it was, she's a wonderful interviewer and I've had so much good feedback. She has so, so strong of a following and, uh, people that have been hitting the website and, um, people that have been asking some questions and some story ideas and that sort of thing. So again, I am so grateful. And if you haven't heard that, her podcast is called Better Than Happy, and that's a transition over from she has been formerly known as Bold New Mom, but uh, if you go to boldnewmom.com, then you can find more information about her podcast, or you can find it on um, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. But uh, I have the video interview of my website as well, um, and that is on tonyoverbay.com. So just head over to the podcast section of that website, tonyoverbay.com, and yes, I have never mentioned on my own site or my own site on the virtual couch before because I just relaunched it on Friday in anticipation of that episode with Jody. So previously, if you went to TonyOverbay.com, it forwarded you to an old blogger page that had a lot of old writings that I did when I used to have a humor column in my local town newspaper. And in particular, the main thing on there is this uh, this kind of almost like a... Uh, journal that I did for, I had, uh, I constantly battle this, uh, it's called actinic keratosis, which is these precancerous skin problems, skin cell growth, abnormal skin growth that happens on my big bald head. And uh, so I had to do this topical chemotherapy cream for this actinic keratosis, and it just makes my entire face and head and and that sort of thing look reptilian and lizard-like. So this was a few years ago, and I literally only found one other person on the internet at that time who was willing to take pictures of their face or head and document it. And so I wrote a lot about that, that whole procedure. It was brutal. I mean, it was really rough, although I was so grateful that to be able to treat that actinic keratosis. And uh, yeah, I mean, actually, if you Google, I, I have to get that up there on my website, on the blog page. Um, but some really pretty crazy pictures because it ended up lasting about a month where I just had this uh, lizard-like skin and face and that sort of thing. But oh my goodness, when... When that stuff all went away and my skin was, I mean, it was just like, well, I guess it was kind of like having a chemical peel. So it was just amazing. And I think it's been a few years now and I'm probably due for another one of those treatments. So I'll have to get on that soon. 
Um, but I eventually want to get all those old humor columns up on that site and that sort of thing. Uh, and you'll find a, f- a page up on TonyOverbay.com with a few of the latest articles that I've written about therapy, how to get guys into therapy. Uh, I talked about on one of my episodes earlier about pornography where I'd been asked to um, write something about. So when is porn okay? You know, and I kind of said, hey, how about never? And so then I, I wrote a little bit about that too. So there's an article up there about that um, with a particular politician where um, he got caught well, saying that his Twitter, uh, his Twitter account wrote about an, an inappropriate tweet. Um, nobody actually taken direct responsibility for that. But so I've got a couple of columns up there, articles about that. And there is a page there for the Virtual Couch podcast. And I have about half of the 42, 43 episodes up there with the rest kind of being uploaded as soon as we can, along with video when there has been video. There's not video of this one today. And you can still go to virtualcouch.xyz and that will actually forward you to the podcast page. But even more importantly, I would encourage you to go about halfway down that um, homepage and sign up now to receive more information on upcoming an upcoming couples communication program that will be available in the not too distant future. And I promise you, I will never provide your email to anyone. Uh, I will keep it. Only yours truly will have that. I hate spam just as much as anybody. And I will treat your contact info with care. But I want you to know that with the launch of the site, TonyOverbay.com, and I'm telling you, so much imposter syndrome every time I even say that. I think that's why I say it so quickly, just is, uh, is blasting inside of my own head. Um, but I'm just so grateful to have the opportunity to um, create some of these programs that I hope will help people with couples communication. Uh, I also have a couple of programs in the works on parenting, pre-marriage communication, as well as a bunch of others, uh, as well as one on how to keep your sanity If you happen to be married to someone who you might believe is suffering with something like narcissistic personality disorder, that was that is the stuff I continue to hear about more than I ever would have thought I would have um, ever when people are kind of recognizing that they might be married to or involved with somebody that um, has just kind of in that relationship, they feel like they've lost themselves over time. And uh, they feel like they're constantly if you listen to the episode on narcissism, um, this term called gaslighting, where they will have someone argue a point against them. Even if they know that they're correct in that point to the point of where then they start to think that they're the ones that are going crazy. So uh, I want to I want to um, present a course on that as well. And since I took some time with that info, let me just mention very quickly a couple of the partners who support the virtual couch. First, if you shave your legs, face, head, chest, you name it, uh, do your skin a favor and head over to Eli's-Extracts.com. Eli's makes an all-natural organic shave cream scented with essential oils that my listeners have been raving about for months now. The scents are amazing and the essential oils provide healing properties that can alleviate razor burn even on the most sensitive skin, like my big bald head. And use coupon code VIRTUALCOUCH, all one word, for 25% off your entire order. And and then I would continually ask that uh, that you head over to um, any, any woman who has been uh, through any type of betrayal trauma uh, with their spouse. Please go to bloomforwomen.com. And uh, they offer a seven-day uh, trial to their website. Bloom for Women has a tremendous amount of evidence-based um, there's an online community, there's articles, there's videos, there's workbooks, there's all kinds of work to be done to help you get through, I don't want to say get over, but get through and work through betrayal trauma. If a spouse has, has been unfaithful or if uh, a spouse has, has, um, has admitted to or, or been caught with um, viewing, you know, has maybe a severe pornography addiction or compulsive sexual behavior, and, and for a woman who has felt that 
sense of betrayal about not knowing what to do next, um, bloomforwomen.com, please go there. And when you do sign up, instead of the one-week free trial, if you use uh, the coupon code virtualcouch, all one word, you get one month's free access to the site. And all of the the training on there is is truly amazing. I've been through an 18-week betrayal trauma training course from the people who developed Bloom for Women, and it's literally changed the way that I do therapy. Uh, It really has been, so it's pretty amazing. So um, again, bloomforwomen.com and just use that coupon code virtual couch. Okay, now let's get to the topic of the day. Today's topic is sleep. And I've been wanting to talk about this one for a while now. Um, Now, I love all my podcasts, like I love all my children, but I hope that this is the this podcast is going to be the equivalent of the the child, the one of my kids who um, who will carry their empty cereal bowl to the sink and rinse it out and put it in the dishwasher without ever having to be asked. Meaning that I hope that this podcast is just chock full of useful information that everybody can learn something about. That this one will just be this is just going to be one that I am going to try to provide you with so much data. Um, it's a nice bunch of evidence based data and some of the, my own experiences with with this data and that you can all um, get something that will help you with your sleep, with your sleep pattern, with your sleep schedule, if you happen to suffer from insomnia, um, if you're kind of curious about how much sleep should I need or do I sleep too much or do I not sleep enough, that I hope that that is going to be what you will get from here. So I thought that it would be a, a good idea to maybe start with talking about um, REM. So, you know, I work with a lot of clients who have kind of focused on sleep. And let me actually step back here. I have to be honest, too. If you listened to my episode long ago, episode 10, I interviewed the founder of the Ultra Runner podcast. Uh, his name is Eric Schrantz. He's a, he's a really good friend of mine. And I will tell you that still is the greatest story that ever, one of the greatest stories I've ever um, had on the podcast that he told about his two-year-old, I think it was a full cast from the waist down, and her constant diet of peaches. So I'll let you go find that one if you want to hear more of that story. But at one point, we both talked about not needing a lot of sleep. And I admitted on that podcast that I typically shoot for about four hours of sleep. And I've been doing that for about 20 years. And I don't say that a lot because I will be, I will be the first to say that I normally hear at that point that, uh, hey, it's going to get to you. Um, it's going to you know, you're, it's gonna be a problem for you sleeping that little. And, and I will tell you, you know, there are times where I will go, go on deep dives on the internet to try and find other people who don't sleep a lot. And you can find a bunch of uh, good ones there. I think that what, Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or there was an author that wrote the book, um, Richard Harris, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And I think it's all small stuff or something like that. But some of these people who also said that, hey, I don't, I don't sleep very much. And there's a couple of other authors. I, I kind of can't um, pull them at this moment. But uh, I'm, I'm at this point where if I get a good solid four hours, uh, I just feel good and I don't get tired during the day and I'm not falling asleep during sessions, or at least I hope I'm not. I'm not aware of that. Maybe some of my clients would say something different. Um, but uh, And it also, it's one of those things where I almost feel, I remember I was talking with a client not long ago uh, watching the Twilight movies, which I maybe am afraid to admit, but where I remember when they were talking about the vampires don't ever sleep. And I remember thinking, oh, I want to be a vampire, you know, just for that alone, because I feel like there's just so much stuff to do. And I'm not just saying like work, 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 but there's just so much stuff to do in life that uh, I wish we didn't need to sleep as long. Every now and again, I would even try to Google ways to sleep less, but I just wouldn't Google uh, the correct terms and all that I would come up with page after page were people that can't sleep and were looking for um, ways to sleep. So so that's kind of my confession is that I'm coming at this uh, knowing that I know and I understand that the relationship with sleep is extremely important and I work with so many clients who are tired, constantly tired. 
And I, you know, I do kind of find it fascinating. Um, for the next couple of days, just walk around and ask somebody how they're doing and see how often you get, oh, I'm tired. Oh, I'm exhausted. You know, you hear that one all the time. Uh, a quick number two behind that is I'm busy. You know, I'm so tired and busy. Those are the things. Not, you know, hey, I'm doing well. How about you or that sort of thing? But a lot of people like to respond with how tired and busy they are. Uh, so I know, I know that sleep is a problem. And so let me first kind of talk about REM. And, uh, and then I want to get to another article that I'm going to base most of the day around. So this concept of REM, rapid eye movement, right? So REM, um, what is REM sleep? And, and the reason I want to bring this up first is because during this last 20-year journey of me wanting less sleep, uh, I've had the chance to have a couple of clients, a uh, neurologist here or there, um, somebody that actually worked at a, um, at a sleep disorder clinic. And so I do get a chance from time to time to just pick some experts' brains about sleep. And it all typically seems to come back to REM. And, and so let me, let me kind of uh, take this. This is from the, uh, I think it's the National Sleep Foundation, and uh, talks about that the brain cycles through five distinct phases during sleep. So there's, there's basically five stages, stage one, two, three, four, and then the fifth stage is rapid eye movement or REM sleep. So the REM sleep, it's believed, makes up about a quarter of your sleep cycle. So 25%, and it first occurs about 70 to 90 minutes after you fall asleep. And so because your sleep cycle repeats, you enter REM sleep several times during the night. Here's the part where I'm going to say that this is my next phrase, my, my next sentences are not, I'm not pulling this part from evidence-based um, journals, but in anecdotal, in talking with some sleep experts, and I've uh, had this with about, uh, I guess, three, maybe three and a half sleep experts that I've kind of talked about, where the belief is that you know, the average amount of sleep we always hear about is eight hours, but that's the average amount. We have some people that sleep 10, some people, some people that sleep six. And I have a study here that I'll probably get to in a minute that talks about uh, anywhere from five to nine is what a lot of people feel like the average is. So a lot of these sleep experts, again, this is the anecdotal part that I'm, that I'm referring to, have said that the, the ability to get into REM or to get through those stages fairly quickly and then how much time you spend in REM is really what determines how much or how little that uh, we need to sleep. And this is one of those things where we, you know, one of the guys in particular that I talked with that is just, a, he's a brilliant um, sleep researcher. He believes that at some point, um, you know, this is one of those things where 10, 15 years down the road, we will have this part figured out and there will be ways, whether it's by uh, rooms that we create or, or medications that we take that will allow us to quickly get into REM, spend more time in REM, and maybe we won't need as much sleep. Um, which I know there's even a, a, I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to this right now that just say, but I love sleep. And so, hey, you know, knock yourself out. No, no problem. Um, so I think that that this first part is me trying to talk about, you know, people that, that would rather not sleep as much or, but I think this part about REM makes a lot of sense for why some people are tired as well. So during REM sleep, well, let me get back to that. Yeah, so since your sleep cycle repeats, then you are entering REM several times during the night. So in theory, if you got into REM quicker and spent a higher percentage of your sleep cycle in REM, then it would make sense that you would not need as much sleep because the magic uh, that is going on as far as restorative properties of the brain uh, happen during REM. So during REM sleep, your brain and your body, they're energized. And that's kind of when the dreaming occurs. So REM is thought to be involved in the process of storing memories and learning and balancing your mood 
mode. And although that part is the part that we're not really sure exactly, those mechanisms aren't necessarily understood. But so, um, and now I'm going back to the National Sleep. No, this is the National Institute of Neurological Disorders that says REM sleep begins in response to signals sent to and from different regions of the brain. So signals are sent to the brain's cerebral cortex, which is responsible for learning, thinking, and organizing information. So these signals are also sent to the spinal cord to shut off movement, which creates a temporary inability to move the muscles or paralysis. And, and I don't have any information uh, today that I was going to talk about this, but I, I work with several clients who struggle with what is called sleep paralysis, and that is where they wake up and they oftentimes feel like they can't move. I've had a couple of episodes of sleep paralysis in my life, and it's pretty terrifying. And uh, there's a couple of people in my family that, that struggle with this. And um, so just to kind of normalize that, but that's, that's that. It's called sleep paralysis when you oftentimes wake up and you literally can't, you feel like you can't move. Or oftentimes people talk about, uh, feels like something's on their chest. That was one that I had at one point. And it can be frightening. And there's even some, if you really dig deep into sleep paralysis, there's, uh, there are people that say they see certain images or things repeatedly. And so there, there's a little bit of a um, chicken and the egg theory about that. If, if enough people have kind of heard about what, they, what other people see or hear during sleep paralysis, do they kind of you know, make that connection in their own sleep paralysis state? Or if it's something that happens because of uh, the way that the brain's trying to process information and to get one out of sleep paralysis. But back to that. So it says signals are also sent to the spinal cord to shut off movement, creating a temporary inability to move the muscles. Paralysis in the arms and legs. So abnormal disruption of this temporary paralysis can cause people to move while they're dreaming. So, for example, this type of movement while dreaming can lead to injuries that could happen when a person runs into furniture while dreaming of catching a ball. Or in my particular instance, when I will just all of a sudden in the middle of a dream uh, haul off and smack my wife in bed, which is, is not does not go over well for the record. So REM sleep stimulates regions of the brain that are used for learning. So studies have shown that when people are deprived of REM sleep then they are not able to remember what they were taught before going to sleep. And a lack of REM sleep also has been the link to certain health conditions, including migraines. So, of course, the person, me, who would love to not sleep as much, says, well, I can usually remember things. And, uh, and you know, I, I don't have migraines. So, um, but that's just some of the some of the evidence there. So, the reason for dreaming during REM sleep, I love this part too. Not necessarily as understood as we would like. While some of the signals sent to the cortex during sleep are important for learning and memory, some signals seem to be random. And in these random signals that may form a basis for a and it's this is quotes story that the brain's cortex tries to interpret or find meaning in, resulting in dreaming. So that's the part where the brain does want to make sense of everything. Uh, there was a previous episode where I talked about a concept called brain smoothing. Where is the point where if our brain just remembers little bits and pieces um, back in, you know, in history, um, it does not want to just it can't speak in fragments. So it will pull things that will make sense to it. This is why when in couples therapy, I'll have people argue about, you know, it was a Thursday. I was on the couch and I was wearing a yellow shirt. And then the wife will say, nope, it was a Wednesday. I remember. And you were not on the couch. You were sitting on the floor and you were wearing a, you know, um, a pink jumpsuit, you know, and, and the guy's like, I, I've never owned a pink jumpsuit in my life, you know, but the wife, she pictures it so clearly that then now an argument ensues, which is another plug for why I love EFT, emotionally focused therapy, which is not so much, you know, we're going to kind of first work with the perception or what the person was experiencing. Yet I digress. But so I love all that stuff, though, right? So that's the that uh, and random signals that are kind of thrown from the brain. And then the brain, you know, the, the brain's cortex tries to make up a story to interpret or find meaning of what these random signals are that are flying around the brain. So there we go. There's a little bit about REM. So I think that's kind of important to talk about that. Now, here's the reason, one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this, uh, this podcast. So 
there's a there's a really good article and it's in a it's called Perchance to Dream The Hunt for a Good Night's Sleep and it's from it's called the Nutrition Action Health Letter and that is put on by the Center for Science and the Public Interest and you can find this uh, publication at nutritionaction.com and this is a little it's just a little thing I've been subscribing to it for many years and usually if I'm being honest it ends up in the bathroom um, which is a, a nice quick read so it has a lot of uh, things that just talk about you know it, it'll 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 debate uh, everything from I don't know butter and margarine or or what are you know it's all kind of evidence based research things about food about uh, today we're talking about sleep um, and it just has some real fun little um, evidence based uh, studies and research articles that are that are kind of interesting here's one before I get to the perchance to dream that's on the opposing page but it says beyond beyond arm's length. Says, want to snack less? Then keep them out of reach. Researchers randomly assigned 246 adults to sit at a large coffee table with a glass bowl of M&Ms either 8 inches or 2 and a third feet away during a 10-minute relaxation break between two cognitive tests. So they got them in there to do other testing, but then during this relaxation break had the, the bowl of M&Ms 8 inches or 2 and a third feet away. Roughly 70% of those near the bowl, but only 58% of those farther from the bowl took some M&Ms. What to do? When it comes to unhealthy snacks, distance is your friend. Now there's a part of it that's going to say, well, no, duh. But I mean, it's, but but if we're talking about behavioral mechanisms to kind of change uh, change your life, then let's make sure we keep those M and M's um, quite a bit further away. You got a better chance of not just impulsively reaching out and grabbing them. But back to this article: perchance to dream, the hunt for a good night's sleep. So, in this article, um, there was uh, an interview by Nutrition Action's Caitlin Dow. She interviewed a guy named Michael Vidiello, which I could have butchered that. But he's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of Washington, and he has more than 30 years' research. Um, he's an expert on the causes and consequences and treatment of age-related sleep disorders. So I wanted to kind of go over this a little bit. There's a lot of good information here, and then I've, I have a couple of other things as well about some sleep myths. So we're going to get to this. But I think the bulk of the time we're going to spend is in this perchance to dream. So in the perchance to dream, uh, Caitlin Dow does a Q&A with Michael Vidiello. And first of all, they, they talk about how many people do suffer with inadequate sleep. And uh, Michael says up to 50% of the population, kind of depending on how you ask the question, do have complaints about their sleep pattern. Um, but not all have what we would call insomnia. So people with insomnia have chronic trouble falling asleep or staying asleep or waking up too early, and that means that problems can last for months or longer. And then they also have trouble functioning during the day, which they attribute to their sleep difficulties. And they have these sleep issues despite having an adequate opportunity to sleep. So I think that that's, that's kind of one of the first keys is having an adequate opportunity to sleep. So um, Vidiello says that if somebody comes to him and says they're having trouble sleeping, but they only work, but they work three jobs and they only allow themselves maybe three or four hours a night of sleep, then that's somebody who is not going to be diagnosed with insomnia. So the diagnosis of insomnia is going to come when people have an ample opportunity to sleep, but they have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or getting up too early. Now, he says between 6 to 10% of adults actually uh, suffer from insomnia. So it's still a sizable number of people. But here's where I kind of like to talk about um, some of the things we want to get to a little bit later here is... You know, a lot of people uh, have just developed a, a I would maybe call it an, an inappropriate relationship with sleep or, or a uh, not a positive relationship with sleep. Um, and so that's more of the problem. So they have the opportunity, um, but, uh, but then they, they are still unable to sleep. So uh, just a couple of kind of for the G-Wiz file, um, 
does sleep change as people get older? Yes. Most studies report that people get less deep sleep, less REM sleep. That's that rapid eye movement sleep when we dream. Um, more awakenings, more light sleep, and more fragmented sleep. But most of those changes occur earlier than we once thought. The vast majority occur between post-adolescence and 50 to 60 years old. So um, the thought now is that uh, it used to, we used to believe that it wasn't until people got really, really old that they that their sleep patterns changed. But now we know that people start to get less of the sleep that they actually need a lot sooner, which is which is what's causing a lot of those sleep problems. So the question was, so your sleep might not get worse beyond your 60s. And Vidiallo says, if people stay healthy as they age, their sleep doesn't change much when they go from, say, age 60 to 100. But so the key there is that, hey, if we're, if we're younger than 60, we really need to kind of figure out a way to dial in our sleep. Um, I thought that they did a nice job, too, on talking about over-the-counter sleep aids. So um, the question was, what active ingredients are in over-the-counter sleep aids like z Tylenol PM? And he says that there's really only two that are common in, in most of the over-the-counter sleep aids. That's uh, diphenhydramine and then some that are, uh, uh, I think it's doxlamine. And they're both actually from the antihistamine family, which I thought that's kind of interesting. So um, like Benadryl, when, you know, if you take Benadryl for beta bee sting or your allergies are really bad and you get sleepy, that uh, the active ingredients in the over-the-counter sleep aids are similar to, they're, they're from that antihistamine um, family. Here's what I thought was interesting. He says, do they work? They might work for occasional sleep sleeplessness, but not for treating insomnia. There's no evidence that they are helpful for everyday use, and labels even say not to use them chronically. Um, there's very little data that they improve sleep at all, and most of that data comes from just a little bit of a few trials. And uh, he goes on to say that there are big side effects. Cognitive clouding and grogginess are a particular problem for older adults. And the American Geriatric Society lists these compounds, the ones that we first mentioned, as drugs that older adults should not take. And then there's other side effects that come along with those, such as dry mouth and constipation, that sort of thing. Uh, and so this is, and I'm just going to read this verbatim as it is written. So the Caitlin Dow asks, anything more serious with these over-the-counter drugs? And Vidiallo says, in 2015, a colleague of mine here at the University of Washington published a paper that found an increased risk of dementia and Alzheimer's in people who take over-the-counter sleep meds over the long term. Uh, that kind of study can't prove that OTC sleep meds cause Alzheimer's, but to play it safe, people should be cautious about using them. So again, we're, we're heading down more of we need to establish a better relationship with sleep and what leads up to sleep, which is what we're going to get to here in just a second. Um, but here's the one that I have a lot of people talk about is does melatonin help with sleep? So Vidiala said, while people who take it in studies report very few side effects as a, better than with the sleep aids, and he says, and I, and I emphasize sleep aid, it's not effective. However, it may work if you have a circadian rhythm disorder like jet lag. That's I remember the first time I heard about um, melatonin was I used to travel to Japan often, and my Japanese business partner would always take some melatonin when he got back to Japan after the jet lag of the U.S. So the circadian rhythm is the body's internal biological clock. So if that's out of alignment, then your sleep-wake cycle can be off. So, uh, and here's where the, the science comes in with melatonin. So Vidiallo said there's a track of nerves that run directly. It's, it's from the eyes, directly the pineal gland. And so the light kind of keeps that gland from secreting melatonin. And then darkness actually triggers that gland from, mel from producing its own melatonin. So melatonin doesn't put you to sleep but it preps your body for sleep. So if you take it at the right time, 
it may help realign your circadian rhythm if your circadian rhythms are out of whack. But uh, he goes on to say you might not also be getting what you paid for. So apparently a number of years ago, researchers found out that quality control and over-the-counter brands of melatonin was, in his words, ghastly. So just because it said two milligrams on the bottle, for example, it didn't mean that there were two milligrams in the pill. So let's talk about treating sleep disorders, treating insomnia. Um, the Caitlin asked, what's the best way to treat insomnia? And uh, Vidiallo says cognitive behavioral therapy is the gold standard. So unlike many behavioral programs for, say, like weight loss or alcohol reduction, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, CBT capitalizes on your body's inherent drive for sleep and your circadian timing of sleep. It teaches you behaviors that maximize those biological drives, and that's why it's so powerful. So the, the biggest key there with CBT and helping with sleep is the fact that your body does need sleep. Um, you, have this, uh, you have this drive for sleep, and your circadian timing uh, relegate, you know, is in charge of how, how and when you sleep. So how does cognitive behavioral therapy work? One of its two biggest components is stimulus control. This is where it's key, stimulus control. It's about having the bedroom environment predict sleep and reassociate the bed with sleep. So it's like going to bed only when sleepy, getting out of bed when unable to sleep, and not sitting there watching the clock. And then the second is time and bed restriction. So people with insomnia often try to get more sleep by spending more time in bed, but that doesn't work. So in order to be the most efficient and effective sleeper, you have to be in bed only as long as you're asleep. And this is where I really think things get to be key. I like how he said that there where people often feel like, okay, I got to spend more time in bed if I am going to be able to overcome this insomnia. But what you are doing is now we're starting to go back to some of the stuff we've talked about with the brain, the way the brain works, the habit center, the basal ganglia of the brain, where you're starting to, to deepen those neural pathways of the brain that say, that the bed is not, you know, it's not even just that it's not a place where I go to just think about nothing but counting sheep, but it, it's also starts to become a place of that can bring on anxiety because we don't feel like we're getting the sleep that we need. So therapists also like to review, it's called, and I love this phrase, sleep hygiene. And then and then also I'm a big fan of, and, and Vidiallo talks about sometimes adding relaxation techniques. And so patients might also work on beliefs about sleep or how to deal with anxiety. So some people are worriers. So they use the bed as a time to go over everything that was terrible today and anticipate everything that will be terrible tomorrow. So that, and, and again, if I go back into the world of therapy, those are the kind of things where when people finally stop for the day, if they don't already have a mindfulness practice in place, there's that phrase, that word again, um, if they don't already have a, a practice where they are learning how to view some thoughts as just thoughts. A thought is just a thought is just a thought. Remember, if you just sit there and watch your thoughts, become a, an observer of your thoughts for, let's say, a minute, your brain can put so many thoughts on this stage that uh, that you're watching all the time. But yet, why do we why do we attach such meaning to certain thoughts? So the key is by daily mindfulness practice, and I'm a big fan of the app Headspace, but there are so many other, um, there's so much out there now on mindfulness and, and learning how to calm the brain, learning how to change the relationship with your thoughts. But this is another reason why this becomes so important because we can't leave it until that end of the day to now say, man, now I'm going to sit there in bed and I'm going to go over all of the day's events. I mean, we need to learn and do this mindfulness practice throughout the day so that when these thoughts, when these these anxiety, when these tough moments come to mind, um, that we learn to kind of view those thoughts with a little more perspective. And so we learn how to, in the moment, be able to kind of put a thought aside. If a thought is not productive to my central goals, values, 
um, hopes and dreams, then we're going to say that's not a productive thought. And we're going to kind of move that one on through. And, and there's nice research that shows that a mindfulness practice, at least eight minutes a day of up to eight, I think it's after eight weeks, that we do start to change the neuropathways in the brain. And our brain does eventually, and, and this is my words, but I feel like my brain knows that if I'm going to start kind of, all right, doing a little bit of deep breathing in through the nose, out through the mouth, kind of getting myself more centered, my brain's like, man, this guy's no fun. Like we can't get him spun up like we used to. So by the time I'm hitting the bed, I mean, it is, it is time for sleep. Um, it's not time to kind of go over the day's events and that sort of thing. So, so um, what relaxation techniques does CBT use? There are deep breathing exercises. So there are there are ex- mindfulness exercises. And let me tell you, if you're not up yet for getting um, a subscription to something like a Headspace or, but there's others. Call I think Calm.com. There's some others out there that have uh, some free programs. Uh, and, and at this point, you can probably look on YouTube or other places as well and look for mindfulness or mindfulness meditation or that sort of thing. But one of the techniques that I love is just simply taking a little bit of time and all you're trying to do is just take, you know, sit and uh, and just kind of take three deep breaths, you know, in through the nose for two or three seconds and then out through the mouth for two or three seconds, in through the nose for two or three seconds and out through the mouth. And, and for me personally, because I've got this kind of a bit of a racing ADD brain to begin with, I say the phrase, the word in when I'm breathing in and out when I'm breathing out in my head. And, and I find that in those moments, I'm not thinking about anything else. Um, do that a few times a day. And that will literally calm, it will calm the nerves. Um, it will kind of help you get grounded. It will lower your uh, heart rate. And, uh, and if your brain is starting to get over anxious or over, you know, it starts to do uh, it's a bit of over analysis, um, starts to jump into fight or flight mode. Um, this is going to help you kind of get more grounded and tell your brain that, Hey, we don't need you in fight or flight mode right now. Because remember in fight or flight mode, our brain is shutting down the rational part of the brain, this lower brain or the, uh, uh, what the amygdala the, the, is, is kicking in and it's saying, Hey, we got this. We might have to, we might have to do some battle here. So rational brain, you guys take a hike. And, uh, so we want rational brain to get involved again. So the deep breathing, um, that's a nice way to just practice throughout the day. And then here's the one that I love. And I learned this one through the Headspace app. And that is, and it's it's shocking how difficult this can be. But at times, and sometimes I will do this in bed or I'll do this at other times if I'm just trying to calm my brain, is uh, just try to, you know, on every in-breath, count one, and then on out-breath, two, and then on in-breath, three, and on out-breath, four. And you're just trying to get to 10. And anytime you realize that I'm not doing that right now because now your mind's wandered, you just start all over. Just go back to one. And, uh, and that's just a nice exercise to stop you from chasing or ruminating on some of these thoughts that maybe aren't very productive. So, so that those relaxation, that the deep breathing produces a physiological response where your nervous system switches into a relaxed state. Uh, nothing really mystical about it, Vidialo says. You can do it pre-sleep or if you wake up during the night or you can even do it at your desk at work. So I love this part too. How long does CBT training take? It can take about six weeks, but a lot of people start to benefit even within a couple of weeks. And so I think that's important to know. This isn't going to be a, a, a something that's going to kick in overnight. I mean, it does take work. Even the changing the relationship with your thoughts, it's, it's thought work. It's brain work. It does take time. So what kind of benefits will you get from this CBT? The most powerful is the absence of fragmented sleep. So one of the things that's most annoying is if you go to bed and your eyes stay open and your little brain stays active and it's 45 minutes before you fall asleep. And then if your eyes pop open in the middle of the night and you spend an hour, maybe once or twice being unable to get back to sleep, uh, most insomnia complaints have to do with the difficulty returning to sleep. 
So um, the bottom line, Vidiello says, there are many ways to sleep wrong and many factors that contribute to poor sleep, but there are many more ways to fight your way back. The tools are there. People just have to be aware of them and they have to be willing to use them. So I love that article. Uh, He does have there's a little um, insert that says sleep hygiene 101. And it's nice. It's nice to kind of go over these. These are things I think that most of us do know. But avoid caffeine. Uh, It says that it can take eight hours to wear off. Limit alcohol at night. You may fall asleep faster, but alcohol cuts the time you spend dreaming and in deep sleep. Unplug. Here's the big one. Avoid bright lights, the phone, the computer, tablet, and the TV. For uh, try Shoot for an hour before bed. But here's the big one. Setting bedroom boundaries. This is proper sleep hygiene. No eating, reading, TV viewing, etc. We want that bedroom to be the place that we are sanctuary for sleep. And reduce noise. So avoid falling asleep to music or the TV. If necessary... Use a white noise machine or a fan for soothing sounds. And in the therapy world, we have white noise machines everywhere, and you can pick them up for about 30 bucks on Amazon, and uh, they really are nice. So try to stick to a schedule. Um, aim for regular bedtime and rising time and avoid naps after about 3 p.m. And do try to adopt a routine. Here's what I love, too. Talk about the power of habit. Uh, a regular pre-bedtime routine helps the brain recognize that it's time to, time to go to sleep. And this is so real. I mean, you know, if you do a little brushing and flossing and maybe wash your face and that sort of thing, I mean, your body knows, oh, this guy's shutting down. So try to have a regular bedtime routine if you can. Um, I, I never heard, well, avoid big meals late at night. They can cause indigestion. I've had that. Uh, one of the one of the, one of the worst uh, things I ever had with that was uh, not too long ago. We were at a, my son's basketball tournament out of town. Um, I go and I ate, ate more pizza than I think I ever have in one single sitting in my entire life. And uh, and combined with I don't know why, but I was dipping everything in ranch. I think because all the boys were and had soda that sort of thing. My wife and I get back to the the hotel and we both just felt horrible. So we said, okay, let's uh, let's just go to the gym and let's run. So I ran for about an hour, and of course I have to go hard, so I'm going to do a nice speed workout within an hour of eating that kind of a meal. And I literally felt like I was going, I was having a heart attack. I mean, I've never felt that bad in my life. I even, uh, I started Googling and, and found out that there was like a um, acid indigestion reflex, or what was it, uh, exercise-induced reflex or acid indigestion, and it was horrible. So acid had literally, I guess, crept up my esophagus and and uh, had gotten into some places that probably shouldn't. And uh, so, yeah, definitely avoid those big meals late at night, especially if you're going to try to do a speed workout right before you go to bed. Try a hot bath before bed. That's one I haven't done, but, I, man, that one sounds good because it says afterwards your body temperature drops, and that may trigger sleep. Keep the bedroom cool. I do love that one. And then check your medications. Some medications for coughs, colds, or allergies can keep you up, especially like uh, some of the medications for things like um, ADD, ADHD. Those are those are uh, stimulants, and so those can keep people awake as well. So do check your medications. All right, I want to get to a couple of fun facts. Actually, really quick, too, when I was talking about the melatonin, um, I had a little note on here that one of my when I was doing this travel to Japan, um, there was another guy that I would travel with from time to time that, you know, that was the one time that he did use sleeping pills, especially, I believe, on the way home. Um, so he would then, right when you're boarding the plane, he would he would take two of whatever some sleeping pill was. So he gave me two and I was going to try it. And then you sleep the whole time and you wake up and it's the morning in the U.S. And so he's like, I promise you, this is the quickest way to get you back to normal. And so we're there at Narita Airport. And they call for our plane to board. I pop these two sleeping pills in. I'd never done anything like that in my life. And I'm just looking forward to it. I mean, I'm thinking this is going to be nice. And then uh, we're, we're boarding. And uh, we're boarding. And, and then at that point, they say, hey, folks, uh, from captain from the cockpit. And we we're experiencing some problems with this plane. So we're going we're gonna to have everybody depart. And we're going to have you meet back in the, you know, back in the, 
um, in the airport. So we all get off the airplane. At this point, there, it kicks in. And I'm dying. And then at that point, we still, I think we had one or two more gate changes. It ended up being about three or four hours. And I don't think I've ever felt so groggy in my life having to drag myself around an airport. And then, of course, uh, it had worn off by the time we finally got on the plane. And I was just wound up for the next 11 hours on that flight back to the U.S. So, <clears throat> all right. Let me get to a couple of just kind of fun facts. And then uh, then we'll call it good. Uh, let me s- start with the myths. So one of the myths is the the eight hours of sleep. And um, this just talked about the um, this myth number one talked about how much sleep we really do need, and it did say that it was more between the the five and nine hours or five and ten hours might be um, the range. And and the thought was here to help you determine your magic number. Look for clues. You know, if you find yourself falling asleep every evening in front of the TV, or you need a constant stream of caffeine, I think that's a pretty big one to keep your mind on track. Then your ideal number of sleep hours is probably higher than what you've been getting. And so try to go to bed a little bit earlier. And if you can get through your day without propping your eyelids open, then then you know you're kind of getting into a better spot. So this one's interesting too. Getting woken up at night, this is myth. This is a myth. Getting woken up at night costs me only the minutes that I'm awake. Not so. Unfortunately, um, this is according to the 2014 study in the Journal of Sleep Medicine. Looked at the effects of sleep interruption over two nights and confirmed what every new parent basically already knows. And so it says in the study, the first night, all the study participants slept for eight hours and researchers then measured their mood and their ability to pay attention. So everything was good so far. But the next night, the participants were split into two groups. Half slept only for four hours while the other slept for eight hours, but got woken up four times for 10 to 15 minutes each at a stretch. So technically, they spent at least seven hours of sleep, three hours longer than the four hour group, just interspersed with awakenings. And then the next day, everybody's mood was and attention was measured again. And I love in this article, it says that anybody who who has ever had a newborn or has been on call for work can predict what happened next. The mood and attention of folks with interrupted sleep were just as bad as those who only slept for four hours. Both groups felt more down, more depressed, um, irritable, had a hard time going to uh, had a hard time going throughout the day, and then plus the performance on the attention of the tasks that they were doing got worse the longer they kept at it. So, um, and the the author here says, whoever coined the term "sleep like a baby" clearly had never had one. Uh, myth number three in this uh, in this article is that I should go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. And I love this too. Um, and then three and four actually go together. Said it's partially true. You should wake up at the same time every day, give or take an hour, um, even on the weekends. And and what happens if you snooze until noon on Saturday morning? Then basically you've introduced jet lag without traveling at all. And so then that kind of gets um, more into this one. So in myth number four, I have an internal alarm clock in my brain. So it says, yes, the master clock is technically called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN. And it does exist in your brain. But almost all of your organs, plus your fat and skeletal muscles, follow some sort of daily rhythm as well. Your gut, your liver, your kidneys in particular, they, they all have strong rhythms. And so in short, you do have an internal alarm clock, but you have them all over your body, not just in your brain. So that's why you can feel lousy when you have this feeling of jet lag or why you often feel groggy or feeling thrown off when you sleep in on the weekend. Your whole body is physically affected. And I think I, I've heard that so many times and I get that as well where you'll say, man, I, I, if I sleep too long, I kind of feel off. And, and that's why. So we've kind of, again, it's, it's all about that, throwing off that circadian rhythm. 
So, and over the long term, throwing off your body clock, uh, then that's uh, if you're doing that through like overnight shift work. Or I work with a lot of doctors and nurses and and people that that you know that circadian rhythm gets thrown off for frequent jet lag or uh, like college student style sleep habits that can put you at risk for some serious diseases. And um, there's an article in Psychology Today that's uh, it's called Nutrition Tips for Night Shift Workers, and they say that there there's starting to be some tie-ins to things such as uh, breast and colon cancer and things like that with the disruption of the circadian rhythms. It says circadian rhythm disruption is also thought to be a crucial factor um, that sends some of those merely at risk kind of over the edge. So it says, for example, only 30% of alcoholics develop liver disease. <clears throat> Excuse me, but why? It says a 2013 study found that circadian disorganization common in shift workers increases the permeability of the intestinal uh, epile- I should I should I should edit this part out um, but basically what it's talking about is in other words a leaky gut so in this context of what the researchers called injurious agents um, a leaky gut puts folks at a higher risk for liver inflammation and disease so they concluded that while there are many factors that determine whether someone with alcohol addiction develops liver disease circadian disruption may be the swizzle stick that kind of breaks the camel's back so I thought that was fascinating. So, so we're still trying to figure out um, lo- a lot of different factors of why certain people, um, <clears throat> and that's that thing where you, you know, we all know people that, hey, they drank and smoked their entire lives and, and they're healthy and somebody else you know, was healthy and then and didn't drink and smoke as much, but something happened to them. And so some researchers are trying to, to look at what, again, they're called injurious agents. And uh, some believe that uh, circadian rhythm disruption may be pretty key there. So I'm sure there's going to be more science that comes out on that over time. And then the last thing, uh, on the contrary, uh, it says wasting time or counting sheep will help me sleep. So if you know you're going to be staring at the ceiling for a while, get up. So this is what we talked about in that other article. Yes, your bed is cozy and warm, but here's why you should get out of it. Much like Pavlov's dogs associated the bell with food, you probably associate your bed with one thing, sleep. So, but if you lie in bed for more than 15 to 20 minutes without sleeping, you may start to associate your bed with none other than being awake. And when you watch TV um, or look on your phone or that sort of thing for a while before bed and you can't sleep, then those two become associated with your bed. So eventually, instead of bed equals sleep, um, bed could also end up meaning TV and meaning, um, you know, Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or planning, you know, what you're doing the next day. So, you know, if you are finding that that is what you believe is the best time to do those things is while you're laying in bed, I would just I would I would question that one um, just for the sake of not disrupting that circadian rhythm. All right. I'm going to leave with just a few of I love interesting fun facts that uh, we're learning about sleep. Twelve percent of people dream entirely in black and white. Um, Two thirds of a cat's life is spent asleep. A giraffe only needs one point nine hours of sleep a day, whereas a brown bat needs nineteen point nine hours a day. And uh, the record for the longest period of sleep without going without sleep is 11 days. A Californian student named Randy Gardner in 1964, definitely not recommended. And Randy experienced extreme sleep deprivation, but uh, there are actually people who have died for trying to stay awake or break that record. And I love this one. It's not uncommon for deaf people to use sign language in their sleep. And uh, there are many instances where people have reported their deaf partners or children using sign language in their sleep. Okay. Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time to go on this um, sleep journey with me. Um, Sleep. It is something that I know that people have such a love-hate relationship with it, but I hope that we brought a little bit more knowledge about sleep, um, in particular things like the circadian rhythm or things like good sleep hygiene. This is one of those things where, as with anything that I'm working with in therapy, uh, ultimately it comes down to 
how much are you willing to work or change in your life to to achieve better results? So a lot of these things, I don't know if there, you know, there's a lot of these things we talked about today, especially in the sleep hygiene section that, uh, you know, are, I don't know if there were a lot of things that were things you had never heard of about avoiding big meals or caffeine or um, those kind of things, or let's try to make your bed for sleep or get up if you've been staying in there too long, because we've got to break that negative association with uh, your bed and being a place that might be anxious or just trying to stay in bed until you fall asleep because you're going to force your way into that um, and just understanding maybe changing that relationship. But a big part of this, which comes up with so many so many topics that I get to talk about, is that changing the relationship with your thoughts. So I think one of the things that I thought was key out of all of the, the stuff that I read today was if you have this um, relationship with with sleep or with going to bed where you you can't turn your mind off, um, it's time to really start to look at some sort of daily mindfulness practice because the more that you can, and first of all, it'll give you a way to try and calm the brain even in that very moment that you're trying to fall asleep. But even maybe bigger still is that you're going to learn over time ways to deal with those thoughts during the day, the thoughts that are productive, the thoughts that aren't productive, and changing that relationship with those thoughts even in the very moment will be the key to having them not hold as much significance when you're trying to shut your brain off for the day. So thanks again for joining me. Please uh, stop by www.tonyoverbay.com and uh, sign up there to find out more about upcoming um, couples communication uh, programs as well as ones about um, how to live with a narcissist, uh, pre-marriage communication, um, how to be a better parent, a lot of those kind of things. And if you have a moment, please uh, rate and subscribe Um, comment on the podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I'm grateful for the support and I look forward to seeing you next time here on the virtual couch and taking us away is the ever talented um, Aurora Florence with it's wonderful. Compressed emotions flying past our heads and out the other end. The pressures of the daily grind is wonderful. Wasting rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most
existence don't explode. 